0: If you want to grab your copy of God's Word, let's go to Acts chapter 19. Our Not Lacking series continues there. We're going to find a somewhat amusing story involving a group of brothers and a demon-possessed man. It sounds like a good mix for a good lesson that God's going to pour into our hearts tonight. And even though the account gets kind of comical towards the end... I will caution you with this, the subject's no laughing matter. So it's going to be kind of funny, it's going to have its funny parts to it, but as it pertains to the subject that it's going to take us through, it's really not something worth laughing about. So Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11, God's word says this, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, So that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Let's pray one more time. God, as we open up your word and encounter your truth tonight, I pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are ready to receive it. And God, I know the nature of this message that you have placed upon my heart to share with these people tonight. And I know, God, that the forces of hell are going to fight against it. As a matter of fact, I've already sensed that his armies are at work in these moments. God, I just pray in the name of Jesus that you would bind him from this place that he would not be allowed to grab a foothold in any way, from or fashion to snatch away the seed of your word as it goes out so that you and you alone can be glorified through the teaching and the preaching and the proclaiming of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's talk about enemy encounters for a few moments tonight. Remember, by definition, being caught lacking is being caught by an enemy without a weapon to defend yourself. It's us being caught in a moment where we're not paying attention. It's us being caught in a moment where we are off our guard. And I want to make a statement, and I want you to understand the weight and the gravity of the truth of what it really is. We have a real enemy who stands in opposition to our Savior and to us. We have a very real adversary who despises Christ and his kingdom, who despises Christ and his creation, who despises any soul that has ever grace the face of this earth, we have a very, very real enemy and a very, very real adversary. And he does not sit idly in his hatred, watching from a distance, scowling at us. He is active. He is scheming. He is cunning. He is crafty. And he is always on shift. He never takes a day off He never goes to sleep. He is day in and day out scheming against Christ and against his saints and against his church. Spiritual warfare and the battles that it brings is a very, very real thing. So, be assured, you will have encounters with the enemy in this life. And we don't want to be caught lacking. We don't want to be without defense We don't want to be caught off guard or by surprise when these encounters show up. We need to know how to defend ourselves. We need to know how to fight back. And we need to know how to do those things wisely. When we encounter these forces, sometimes the best method in learning is by looking at a good example of what not to do. Case in point, the Skeva sons. These boys are about to teach us some valuable lessons on how to or how not to handle our enemy when we encounter him. These guys had apparently seen some of the miracles that Paul and the apostles were doing in Jesus' name. And I guess thinking it was a cool thing, something that maybe maybe could get in on for some notoriety or for some clout or for, for some fame of their own. They decided to go try their hand at it with the local demoniacs down in the marketplace, and it majorly backfires on them so the text tells us that, that these guys observed Paul and the apostles and the many miracles that were being performed by God through them. And so they kind of took it upon themselves to think, well, we're going to get in on some of that action. Like all, Paul and the apostles are getting all this kind of notoriety. People know who they are. They kind of get some status built up behind them for the things that God was doing through them. And so they said, well, maybe we're going to get in on some of that. So they get themselves together and they go down to the local marketplace and they say, i tell you what, let's, let's find, they were apparently exorcists to some extent by trade. And so they decided, we're going to go down to the local marketplace and we're going to find some demon-possessed people and we're going to do some of this casting demon out kind of stuff. And so they do just that. They walk down to the marketplace and they, they find a man who's been possessed by a demon. They walk up to him and they say, we adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims to come out of this man. And the demon responds back and he says, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, who are you clowns? And we're told that the man that was possessed by the demon jumped on top of them, mastered them all, beat the clothes off of them. They're literally running down the street naked after having encountered this man in, in complete humiliation. Now, this turned into a complete laughingstock. It had majorly backfired upon them. Just imagine the scene. Like, <laughs> sometimes I think we just we read stuff in Scripture and we kind of just read it as if it's words off a page. And that's kind of it. Just put yourself in the context of this. Imagine if you're like at Walmart one day and it's just an ordinary day. And all of a sudden, this group of brothers walks up and they start trying to apparently cast a demon out of somebody. The demon gives them some lip back, jumps on top of them. are you watching this from like aisle seven? Like you're just trying to get some pickles off the shelf. And all of a sudden, like, this ruckus breaks out in the produce area. And you look around the corner, and there's this one guy who's beating the crap out of seven other dudes. And in the process of it, he's yanking their clothes off of them. And after, it's so like, one by one, they go, they go busting through the automatic doors, running through the parking lot, trying to find their way back to the car, just butt naked, completely humiliated by what's taking place. And you're just like, just one of the pickles, man, like... Got way more than I bargained for. (laughs) I know you see some things at Walmart, but like I got way more than I bargained for at Walmart today. Completely backfired on. They run off defeated and humiliated, and it's funny, but at the same time, it's not. You know, I feel like a lot of God's people, myself included, we have an encounter with the enemy. We end up finding ourselves in the same position, running off defeated and humiliated. Because we weren't prepared for the attack and we got whipped. You ever been there? You ever been caught lacking when the enemy showed up? You ever been defeated? You ever felt humiliated? Because he caught you off guard? I think we can all relate to some extent. Well, good news, we're gonna work on getting that changed over the next few moments. So everybody say, Not today, Satan. Satan. Man, we're really gonna have to work on it because it was kind of like uncertain, like. I want to let him know, and I'm kind of like, I don't know. So let's work through this a little bit. How, how are we going to handle these enemy encounters? Here's the first truth I want to give you. Stay alert to avert. First things first, we need to have an awareness that the enemy is out there and he is seeking opportunity. First Peter 5.8 says be sober-minded or literally be alert, be watchful, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So often we find ourselves locked in a battle that blindsided us with the enemy just because we lacked an awareness. Now, that doesn't mean that we just constantly live in anticipation of an attack. That doesn't mean we walk around looking for a demon behind every single bush That doesn't mean that every trial or every hardship or every adversity or every challenge that enters into our life is a spiritual attack or a spiritual battle. But we do need to be very, very aware that that does exist, that we do really have a spiritual enemy that is against us. He is against our pursuits of Christ. He is against our obedience to Christ. He is against the building of Christ's kingdom. So we need to have an awareness that this really is a real thing. We keep it in mind and we stay alert. Paul gave this advice in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11. He's coming through a time of ministry with these people, and he says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant or we are not unaware of his design. So Paul says everywhere we go in the midst of doing ministry, in the midst of sharing the gospel, in the midst of planting churches, in the midst of making disciples, we keep an awareness about us that we have a very real enemy that is present and ever scheming ever designing to try and hinder the work and the progression of the gospel. So he says we don't, we don't live our lives based around that reality, but we do keep an awareness of it. We know that he is at work. Listen, the enemy, he's, he's subtle in his approaches. That's why you have to be aware, because he's subtle in the way in which he works. You're not going to advertise his attacks. You're not going to be traveling down the highway of life and look up and see a billboard sponsored by Satan that says, attack in five miles. He's not going to advertise it. He's not going to show up on your doorstep and knock on the door and say, hey, uh, I plan on kind of just actually wrecking your life in the, in the next day or two. Is that cool with you? Like, you good with that? It's probably going to happen like around, I'm planning, so far I'm planning it around like lunch, two days from now. So if that's good with you, like you good for lunch in a couple of days? It don't work like that. He is subtle in his tactics. That's why we have to have an awareness. He's a sneak attack, grab you while your back is turned, kind of fighter. And when he sees it, our lack of awareness invites a leap of action. So if the devil catches you lacking in your awareness, it invites a leap of action. That roaring lion, when he sees a lack of an awareness of a prey that he's stalking, he's gonna pounce. He's gonna jump. That's why we have to stay aware. So all that considered, there are some environments that are more conducive than others for his activity. Places that need to be given a heightened alertness when we find ourselves in them. I've identified four of these kinds of environments that I wanna pass on to you so you can elevate your alertness when you find yourself in these places. The first of which is this, when God is moving. When you find yourself in an environment when, when God is moving, there's always the need to have a heightened alertness on our behalf of the workings of the enemy in that place as well. At the beginning of the text, we're shown that God was heavily at work in this area. So verse 11 says God was doing extraordinary miracles in this place. Miracles were being performed. Lives were being changed. Souls were being saved, and right along with that, right along with God's miraculous working, we see the enemy's working as well. Anywhere that God shows up and begins to do miraculous things, anywhere that God shows up and begins to fan a flame of revival amongst his people, the enemy's going to show up in that place as well to try to counter it. So we need to be aware that when God begins to move in our midst, like he has been over the past little bit, we've been seeing some extraordinary things that God has been doing in each and every one of your lives. The enemy's going to show up and try to counter that in some way, some form or fashion. He wants to stop it. And he'll use whatever means that he can, mainly us, to try to discourage, to try to frustrate to try to cause some kind of dissension or division, disunity amongst the body so it hinders and it quenches the work of God in that place. So, when you find yourself in an environment where God is moving, if God is moving in your life individually, you find yourself having a greater passion for him than you've ever known before, go ahead and just heighten your alertness because the devil is going to be quick behind that to try and squelch it. In the same way, when God heightens his movement amongst us corporately as a body of believers, we need to have a heightened alertness of the fact that the devil's going to try and stop that however he can. Whatever excuse he can put in your way to not show up. Whatever reason he can give you to kind of just dial it back. To put God in a, in a lowered priority position again. That's exactly what he's going to try to do. So be aware when you find yourself in that environment. second one is this. When we're struggling... You find yourself in an environment, a season of life when you're struggling, you need to have a heightened alertness. Mentally, physically, emotionally, we get worn down and we get exhausted at times. Agreed? We ain't even got to midterms yet and some of y'all are like, oh my gosh. Like, is this semester about to end yet? Like, I don't think I'm going to make it all Already, mentally, physically, emotionally, you're worn down, you're tired, you're exhausted, you're trying to keep your grades up. You're trying to go to practice, you're trying to go to class, you're trying to work the job, you're trying to do all those things. We get worn down and exhausted. This is a prime environment for him to attack you in. He tried it with Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus is is in the wilderness, and he's being tempted by the devil there. But listen to some of the key details. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. So Jesus is in the midst of a fast. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Get hungry when you fast. You ever not ate for 40 days? Like, you're going going to be be hungry probably at that point. Like, it's been a minute since Jesus had anything to eat. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. You know when the devil showed up to tempt Jesus? In a moment when he thought he would be at his weakest point. Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days mentally, physically, emotionally. He's going to be running on fumes at this point, And the devil just so happens to show up in those moments and tempt him with what? Food. Why don't you command this stone to become bread? See, the temptation when it shows up in your moment of weakness is never going to be irrelevant. It's temptation for a reason. It's because it's going to be desirable. And so he shows up and he tempts Jesus with food when he's at his weakness, when he sees him run down, when he sees that he's struggling with his humanity. That's when he showed up and began to tempt him. And in the same way, men and women of God, when he sees you in a weakened state, he sees an opportunity. I can't tell you how many times I've come off a Wednesday night service and Thursdays for me are just like, like, it's all I can do to kick myself out of bed show up in this place the next day. I'm tired. I'm worn out physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I can't tell you how many times on a Thursday I hear a knock on the door from temptation during those days. It's a prime environment for him to attack. Third environment. This, one, this one's key. These next two are so key. He will show up in post victory moments. Elijah was a prophet called by God to confront the prophets of Baal. And so he did just that in a time where the nation of Israel was just completely rebellious against God. And so Elijah has this showdown on Mount Carmel, if you're not familiar with the story, with 400 prophets of Baal. And they arrange a testing of the gods. And so they build, a, they build an altar and they put a sacrifice on it. And Elijah tells the prophets of Baal, here's how this is going to work. You call out to your God, I'm going to call out to my God. And the God who answers by fire will know is the one true God. So the prophets of Baal try and try and try. Obviously, it didn't work. Elijah calls out to God one time. God answers by fire, completely destroys the sacrifice. And afterwards... Elijah and a couple of his buddies took all the prophets of Baal down to a valley and slaughtered every one of them. Now think about what Elijah would have just experienced. He's living in a time when the entire nation seems to have turned their back on God. Nobody wanted to respond to God's word. Nobody wanted to pursue after God. They're all chasing after this false idol. And Elijah stands up, confronts these 400 by himself on top of the mountain, sees God answer his prayer immediately by fire and then leads him into a 400-to-1 rout of the enemy. Major victory. Would you agree? Like this should, have been, this should have been like a mountaintop moment for Elijah. Like he should have been high on the Spirit at this point. Thinking, I mean, ain't nothing going to slow it. Can't nothing stop my God. Look at what he just did. Look at what has just happened. And yet right after that, look at what we see Elijah experiencing. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 2, Jezebel, who was Ahab's wife, who Elijah was fighting against, she was all full of prophets of Baal, supporting their worship of him, sends a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me, and more also, (laughs) it's going to sound so ridiculous, so may the gods do to me, the, the fake gods that Elijah just proved weren't real, If I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So Jezebel issues a death threat to Elijah. says, I'm going to kill you for what you've done. And you would think if you just experienced what Elijah did, he'd be like, we'll see. Go ahead and try. Verse 3, then he was afraid. This man has just seen fire come down from heaven. Killed 400 prophets by himself. And a woman threatens to kill his life and he's afraid. And he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, came and sat down under a broom tree and asked that he might die, saying to God, it's enough now, O Lord. Take away my life from no better than my father's. Elijah just experienced this huge spiritual victory at the hands of God Jezebel issues a death threat, he becomes so fearful that he runs into the wilderness, sits down underneath the tree out of exhaustion, and then has this conversation to God that says, God just kill me now because I can't do this anymore, it's all over, I'm done for, this is all pointless, there's no use in all this. Post-victory moments, the enemy loves to show up. He loves to bring discouragement in those following moments. He don't want you living in the victory of God. He don't want you to experience the goodness and the faithfulness of him that he has to bring into your life. He's going to do whatever he can to show up in those next few moments and discourage you, to steal your joy, to take it away. We're told that our enemy is a thief, and he loves to try and steal joy. I've seen this time and time again. Post-victory moments, we see God move in a great, mighty, and powerful way, and the enemy shows up right on the coattails of it to try and steal some of it away. Heighten your alertness. One more atmosphere. He loves to show up in life-altering decisions, particularly as it pertains to our obedience to Jesus and our surrender to him. So when the Spirit of God begins to draw someone into salvation, He places a call to salvation and and following in believer's baptism on somebody's life. Or maybe it's a call to a career to follow after Him, to, to leave selfish ambitions or desires behind. Or maybe a career change after you've been doing something for a while and God begins to direct your path in a different way. Any decisions that we seek to make in radical obedience to Christ can attract the enemy's action in our lives. There's a reason why week in and week out, there are some of you that sit here and you come under conviction of the Holy Spirit of God and you know that he is drawing you into a relationship with himself, but you find some reason to fight it off. You find some reason to push it off until the next week. That's the work of the devil. And I trying to expose some of this stuff. Like, There's a reason why those thoughts come into your mind. There's a reason why he tells you you shouldn't move. There's a reason why he'll flood you with all kinds of just negative thoughts, things that that you would have never even thought of on your own. There's a reason why, men and women, God, when you you seek to pursue Christ with the fullness of your life, when you say, God, wherever you want to send me, I'm all in, there's a reason why all of a sudden you'll have fears that you've never had before. There's a reason why you'll struggle with anxiety when you never have before. There's a reason why you'll start to stress in ways in which you never have before because that's a real enemy out there that will do whatever he can to keep you from living in full surrender and obedience to Christ. He hates it. That's why it's imperative that we stay aware. We stay alert to the scheming designs of our enemy. So many spiritual battles could be averted by our alertness. We just be aware. You know when lions stalk their prey, the moment that the prey alerts or the moment the prey becomes aware of their presence and the lions know that their cover is blown, they won't even bother attacking because they know it would be a waste of energy. Now how many spiritual attacks could we ward off from one who is like a roaring lion if we would have an alertness about us that would walk through this life and say, "Hey." I see you over there. I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. I've seen you play this game before. Hey, it's not going to work. I see you, devil. Not today. Stay alert. You can avert all kinds of spiritual battles. Second truth when you encounter the enemy, don't power trip. Verse 13. It says that these itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. This is where the Sceva 7 really began to highlight for us what not to do. So upon hearing and seeing the miracles that Paul and the apostles were doing, they decided to get in the mix, and it says that they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord over those who had evil spirits. So these guys went out. And they intentionally looked for a fight to pick with the devil. Now listen to me. Do not ever do that. Turn to somebody beside you and tell them, don't do that. Do not ever do that. We do not go out and look to pick a fight with the devil. Turn back to your neighbor and tell them, that's stupid. They decided that they're going to go out on a self-righteous spiritual power trip, and they got more than they bargained for. Now listen, I know we get amped up when God starts moving. I know we get amped up when God starts doing some amazing things in our midst. When we start seeing lives be transformed, we start, people, we start seeing people give their, their full yes to God. We get excited and we get, we get rowdied up about that. And that's awesome. That's great. We should get excited and celebrate those things. But then at the same time, sometimes we start thinking that we're giving hell the business. And we want to tell the devil to bring it on. Listen, don't do that. Please. Get excited, get passionate, get get in a place where you beg and plead, even more so with God to continue to do the miraculous things that he's doing. But don't look at the devil and and act like he ain't got no no horse in this fight still. Don't, Don't tempt him with a fight, please. Now, you may be thinking, come on, Trey, we have power in the name of Jesus. We got authority in the name of Jesus, man. We can can crush his head in the name of Jesus and all this good stuff, and I get that we do, 100%. We have have been given authority in Jesus' name over our enemy, 100%. Scripture backs that. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, God sends out, Jesus sends out some, some disciples to go into the work of the gospel, and it says that they return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And you're like, yes, see, that's what I'm talking about. I told you. That's the kind of power we got. That's the kind of authority we got. And listen to what Jesus says at the end. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, that ain't the party, boys. That's not the focus. That's not the mission. That's not the aim. We have authority in Jesus' name, absolutely over the authority of our enemy, but that by no means gives us permission to go seek out a fight with him. That authority, according to what Jesus has just said, is given to us as we focus on making disciples by proclaiming the gospel. And if in the process of doing that, we encounter the enemy, we then introduce him to the authority. Only then, put it like this, you can access your authority, but don't abuse your authority. Once you're in Christ, it is a powerful truth to know that you're no longer under the devil. But that's not the focus. Going out and picking a fight with him is not the focus. Getting a little bit of authority is not so we can go out and power trip over the devil. Listen, much better to just do this. Just focus on walking with your liberator instead of fighting with your enslaver. As we walk in the authority of Jesus, our motivation should always be advancing the kingdom, not assaulting the devil. Let Jesus take care of him because he's not to be trifled with. So don't power trip. All right, let's get to the really good stuff. When you encounter the enemy, stand firm in your identity. We go back to verse 13, the very last part of that verse. These guys, they they approach this man who's filled with his demon. They say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva We're doing this. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize. Who are you? We get an important piece of information as to why things went south for these brothers that day. And it's when we see that they said in their approach of this demon, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. These guys, they had no authority in Jesus' name because they themselves had never believed in Jesus' name. They had never declared Jesus as their Lord, so they didn't carry his authority. And we know that to be true because they walk up and they say, we adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Listen to me, you don't get to carry someone else's faith into the fight. Just like you don't get to carry somebody else's faith to the gates of heaven one day. And so these guys walk up and they say, we adjure you by the name of Jesus who Paul proclaims. They didn't know Jesus. They didn't know his lordship. They didn't know his salvation. They were just trying to name drop. Listen, name dropping Jesus doesn't get you access to anything. And so you have to have your own faith for the fight. And we see that this is absolutely a useless tactic because the demon responded, Jesus, I know, and Paul, I recognize that who are you? And then he proceeds to whip him. Listen, they encountered the enemy with an insufficient identity. When the enemy asked, who are you? They didn't have a response. And that's when they got embarrassed. That's when they walked away defeated. That's when they were humiliated in the battle. But for those of us who are in Christ, the text shows us this shouldn't be the case. Why did the demon recognize Paul? It's not because Paul was legit. It's not because Paul was doing the things. It's because Paul had an identity in Christ. And just the same, Jesus has given us an identity in him. He calls us his sons and daughters. He says that we are co-heirs with him in his kingdom. He says that in him we are a new creation. In Christ, we become part of a royal priesthood. We become citizens in a holy Nation In Christ, we are now labeled as victorious conquerors in him. In Christ, we have been set free from the bondages of our past and our sin. In Christ, we are now given... The, the, the benefit of being known as righteous and holy. In Christ, we are no longer condemned by the things of our past, present, or future. And in Christ, we are now known as being blameless and chosen. And in that identity, we stand firm against the enemy when we encounter him. So we're going to go over to Ephesians chapter 6. and verse 10, Paul says this, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. So God says, I'm going to prepare you for the battle. I'm going to leave you defenseless, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, Having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. So when he shows up, we don't have to sprint. We can stand. And when he asks, who are you? We can respond with the truth that I am a son or I am a daughter. I am a co-heir with Christ and inheritor of his kingdom. In him he has made me a new creation and has put me as a part of his royal priesthood and has placed me as a citizen in his holy nation. And in him I am a victorious conqueror who has been set free from my sin and my bondage and am now declared righteous and holy by his blood so that I am no longer condemned by my sins, past, present, or future. And I am blameless and chosen and put in his army to build his kingdom so don't catch me lacking devil because I know exactly who I am in Jesus. Do you know who you are? Who are you? Can you respond? Can you respond adequately? When I was a freshman at UNA we went to West Alabama to play baseball. That's like Public enemy number one back then. Hated West Alabama. Still hate West Alabama. <laughs> Don't take that personally. If you transferred from from West Alabama, just consider it as a work of God in your life to bring you to a better place. But couldn't stand West Al. Bitter rivals. And I remember we we're in the outfield, we're doing our pregame warm-ups and stuff like that, and we're out there stretching. And if you ever been to Livingston, you know that there's absolutely nothing there. One stop sign, I think. One red light. Probably a Dollar General. And so they have nothing else to do other than go watch the baseball game. And so these guys would show up, they used to have deck patios in the outfield, all behind the outfield fence. And these guys would show up at like 10:30 and start grilling, start drinking, and they would heckle and heckle and heckle. From 10.30 that morning to nine o'clock that night, they would never let up. Now I remember, we're in the outfield, we're doing our pregame warmups, and there's a, there's a deck full of them that are already there. So I'm over there, I'm kinda of by myself, like everybody else kinda of on the opposite end of the field, we were running foul poles back and forth, and somehow, everybody had already ran theirs and went back, and I got left behind. So I'm like, isolated, I'm like, just a, a, an easy target. So I get on there and we had to do like a certain amount of stretches or whatever before we ran back. So I'm doing all my stretches, doing all those good things. And, and these guys are just giving me the business while I'm down there. They start calling out my full name. Not just my first and my last. They got the middle name somehow too. They know what year I am. They didn't make it any better that I was a freshman. They know my stat line in the season up until that point. So they're reading off my stats to telling me how many walks I've had specifically how many doubles and home runs I've given up, all these things. And then it, like, went next level. They started naming family members. Now, I'm not saying, like, they're not talking about mom and dad. Like, they call them mom and dad by name. They call my sister by name. Like, it it goes to a whole other level. So I'm I'm not responding. I'm just kind of listening. I'm like, okay, it's kind of impressive. Like, they call my girlfriend by name. Me and Ashley were dating at the time. Like they, they bring her into the mix. I'm like, okay, you guys really have nothing. They, they called out my current GPA. Like, it was all kinds. Of, it just kept going. It was, like, it was shocking to me how much they knew. I was like, how in the world have y'all gotten this information? Like, Social media wasn't a thing back then like it is now. Like you, you had to, like, somebody had a private detective like, in their class or something that did them a favor. I don't know, but I was shocked by how much they knew. You know, it's funny because I think oftentimes our enemy better understands our identity in Christ than we do. And we miss out on knowing how to handle the battle correctly because we don't know the full truth about who we are in Christ like he does. You've got to know who you are in Christ. There can't be doubts. The time to learn, listen, the time to learn who you are in Christ is not in the moment when you're battling the enemy. It's before he ever shows up. This guy goes on to say, he says, Paul, I recognize. Listen, I don't don't want you to, we should not fear the enemy. We should not live in fear of him. And I don't want you to get that from this message tonight. Because we do have an authority in Christ that in him we are above the domain of darkness and above the tactics of the enemy we no longer live in submission to his commands or demands over our lives so i don't want you to i don't want you to fear him i want you to live like that huh? i want you to be a, a mighty servant in the kingdom of god and this this demon responds back to these guys he says paul i recognize so listen to me don't be such a minimal threat to the enemy's agenda that he doesn't at least recognize who you are. Don't be just so ho-hum in your walk of faith that you kind of just mosey through this entire life, just kind of halfway following Jesus, halfway not following Jesus, never really giving your life in full submission, surrendering him, never doing anything radical in your obedience to him and what he's called you to do, that the devil just never even recognizes who you are because you are not a threat whatsoever to what he's trying to do. Least be recognized. He may come against you, but Jesus has not left you defenseless. Strap on your armor. And like Paul says, stand, stand firm. Don't back down from the fight when he brings Stand firm in your identity in Christ. When he attacks who you are, respond with the truth of who you are. And know it and believe it. And live it out. One last encouragement. When we encounter the enemy, know that God wins. We go back to the text in verse 17. I didn't read this at the beginning. We're going to pick it up now. It says that after this, so after these guys have been beaten, they've been embarrassed, they've been humiliated, it says that this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily at first glance this seems like it would have been a blow to God in his kingdom it seems that the people would have began to fear darkness instead but in actuality, the opposite happened. The name of Jesus was extolled. The name of Jesus was praised. The name of Jesus was glorified. It goes on to say that actually, many came to believe in him after this happened and they renounced their former ways. They, they had a book burning. So all of these people that were a part of this, this exorcist crowd, this dabbling in magical arts or divination or whatever, all these people came together and they got their books and, and they had a huge book burning. And it gave a value there. And I actually kind of tried to quantify this in modern day value and numbers so that you could understand the gravity of of what has just happened and what God has done in the midst of something that seemed like a very, very bad and terrible incident, what would have been a blow to his kingdom and to his people and how he turned it on its head. In modern day, let's let's say it was a wage of $15 per hour. What these people burned would have equaled itself out to $6 million worth of books. Six million. It's a big number. These people renounced that. They burned it up and they surrendered their lives to Jesus. It's funny because this is what I love about our Lord. This is what I love about our Savior. Jesus has a way of taking the devil's dubs and turning them into L's. he he does it all the time he's done it all throughout the course of history the devil thought he had a win in the garden but God showed up and clothed his people the devil thought he had a win at the cross three days later Jesus got up the devil thought he had a win this particular day in Ephesus Jesus turned it around and many came to know him you know why? because he always wins he always wins and when we understand and truly believe that greater is he what more confidence do you need for the battle? what more confidence do you need for the fight? in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 I want you to listen to what Paul says He's, he's reminiscing with some Brothers in Christ, and they're talking about They're talking about the end. He's talking about the the resurrection, the second coming of Christ, and how our imperishable bodies are or how our perishable bodies are going to become imperishable one day. How the temporary is going to swap over to the eternal one. Listen to what he says. He says, I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed So just, just put yourself in the context of pause with a group of guys and they're talking about all this taking place and you can almost hear like the weighted excitement in their voices they're looking forward to that time when Christ returns or when our life ends, one or the other and we the perishable put on the imperishable in him and what he has done for us and he says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. And When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass this prophetic saying, he says, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. You know what he says? Stand firm. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain, because he will always lead his people in triumphal procession. He always wins. And by extension, when you are in him, amidst the battle, in an encounter with the enemy, you always win as well. take up his mantle take up his authority don't be caught lacking in the battle I've had enough of the devil picking on brothers and sisters in Christ and us not standing firm I've had enough as a matter of fact of of us as a family seeing a brother or sister in Christ being picked on by the devil and not rushing to their aid not coming up to fight alongside them to let them know to let the devil know that what you're doing is not okay it's not going to be tolerated it's not permissible step away from my family In Jesus' name.